to The Lifted Podcast. I'm your host, Talon Denham, and this is a place for us to talk about what we're doing every day to raise our vibration and understand ourselves more deeply as energetic beings and co-creators. All right, I'm looking forward to this episode today. It's gonna be cute. It's gonna be just you and me hanging out for the next little while. We don't have a guest today because I am in Maine visiting my family. I've been here for the past week. My sister and I decided to fly in and surprise my dad for his birthday, which was so cute, so fun. So we've been having a really awesome week over here. And as I'm preparing to go back to California tomorrow, I've been looking through all of my stuff and deciding what books I want to bring back. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do a solo podcast episode. Why don't I do some reading and, you know, share with you guys some of my favorite excerpts from the books I've been really into over the past few months and such. So I hope this is going to be fun. I really enjoy taking a look back through all of this writing and this reading, I guess. So I wanted to start out by sharing this piece with you. It's from a book called Prayers of Honoring by Pixie Lighthorse. I found this book a little while ago at a meditation studio. And while I was just hanging out in the common space, I was reading it. And uh, it's so beautiful. It really moved me. And the book is set up so that you read the different prayers with the season that you're going through. So we're about to enter spring. So I figured I'd read you guys uh, some of the passages that relate to spring. So this piece is called Honoring Origin by Pixie Lighthorse. It is a blessing to be alive today given the long journey through humankind's primitive beginnings to the present. It is a miracle that we are here. Help us to remember the value of our presence at this moment in time. Rewind the lost tapes of our cellular memories to connect to our humble beginnings with awe. Lead us back to the time when we operated with our senses. Help us find our way without gadgetry and excess noise. We are grateful to hear. Sharpen our skills so that we may hear with our eyes and see with our ears. Help us with our night vision for moving through darkness with courage. Spread our toes fully open to receive the energy of earth through our souls. Teach us how to honor the moon, the moon that illuminates the path of the night creatures and the ancient questers, the fire makers, the seekers, the seers of stars and their record keepers. Help us feel the warm history of our ancestors, allowing it to inform us about our ways today. Put us on a good path. Teach us how to walk in strength and beauty again. Allow us to love the darkness, to wrap it around our shoulders, Hunker down at the fire with it and honor the wisdom that comes from the time spent in the dark. Give us a cauldron to stir and the years and patience to wait for good brew. Help us trust that it's all made sense in the end. Help us surrender and feel everything, especially when we have nothing to comfort us and take the edge off. Teach us to understand that it is not beyond, but within our human chaos that calm directives are located. Remind us that enlightenment is sometimes come by clumsily or revealed through a dusty dragging by the hair. Help us craft our tools which will illuminate where we've been so that we comprehend our personal evolution. Help us value the muck that we have had to crawl through to stand our own two feet. Allow us to celebrate where we're going without forgetting where we came from. 
Shine your loving light on the rivers that carried us in, our family lines and the threads that connect us to our primitive beginnings. Help us to awaken from the long slumber and bind ourselves to the magic of transformative evolution in the loyal union with you, embodying the fever of progress with clear intention. All right, so that is honoring origin. So these are all prayers again. So it's kind of like beautiful words of affirmation. And I love how she writes. She's such a great illustrator with her words. So I want to read you guys one more by her too. This one's called Honoring New Life. Thank you for the abundant life force that pulses within us and enthusiastically welcomes the springtime that we are waking up to. It's a blessing to feel the warmth of the sun on our heads and the moist soil of mother beneath our boots. Thank you for spotted fawns, for thorny asparagus, for peonies, for the promising snowmelt, for cherry blossoms and new hash marks on our growth charts. Thank you for fresh buds and green sprigs, for early bird song and chittering squirrels. Thank you for renewing our souls with the hope as the season turns over. Let us think of every project as precious seeds. Guide our hands to plant with love, to water the rose with diligence, and to treasure the sowing process as much as the impending harvest. May we plant with conscious intention. When we have a very good idea, help our minds align with our hearts to know if it's the one to set in the soil. Let love drive the plow. Help us see each other as your unique creatures, each of us with special gifts designed to honor life. Remind us to acknowledge and celebrate our innate talents, to find creative ways to celebrate the gifts you've given us in this lifetime. Show us new ways to express ourselves with more truth and clarity. Find us lying on your breast, Mama, under the blue sky nation, sprouting with each teardrop, breathing what the plants breathe, seeing what the birds see, feeling what the rabbits feel, sensing what the snake senses. Teach us to care for and preserve your invaluable resources so that the snakes, birds, rabbits, deer, and plants can continue to thrive as well as the children. Instill in us the belief that we can create a world we can be proud of and leave the earth more beautiful in the process. Work in our hearts so that we are open to sharing our harvest when it comes. Make good scouts of us so that we can follow a path of bliss and leave no trace. All right, the next excerpt I wanna share with you guys is from a book called Spirit Hacking by Shaman Durek. This has gotta go down as one of my all-time favorite books. I love how Shaman Durek writes. He's very conversational. And in the book, there are so many like tangible practices and rituals that you can do from fire scrying rituals to like spirit hacking soul talks and connecting with your spirit team and your ancestors. Like it's a very tangible hands-on book with so many amazing practices. So I'm going to read you this little section. Uh, there are a couple in here. This one's titled, You're Either a Tap or a Drain. We are far more than simple two-legged mammals biding the illusion of linear time on a spinning rock. We are quantum creators living in a multi-dimensional reality of infinite possibility. Every time we open our mouths to speak or touch a screen to type or fire a neuron to think, we're either creating or destroying. Like I always say, you're either a tap or a drain. Words are powerful, powerful tools of creation. When we speak, we align our words with our will, which fuels those words into form. 
The act of thinking and the act of speaking are creative acts because our words function as a magic wand that God has given us to wield our will into the world. And, you know, he says God, but you can use the word universe, spirit, whatever resonates with you. Okay. God creates based on our words, taking each and every one as instruction as to how we want our realities to shape themselves. Every word we speak is a seed of creation without exception. People have God so wrong. They think God is occupied judging and counting sins and tracking how many times we've said his name in vain and then sending scourges to punish us. All God does is listen to what we say and listen to what we think and then manifest our words into form. God is occupied only with creating. This is why it's so important that we're mindful of our words and our thoughts because it is law of the universe that God creates whatever we say and God doesn't just create the good stuff. God isn't stuck in any delusions of duality. So God doesn't do good or bad or right or wrong. Those are human constructs. God gave us free will so that we could figure out our evolution for ourselves, which means that everything we say and everything we think becomes. And then on the next page, he also has a little section called How Not to Pray, which I'll read to you as well. The spirits were very clear. If I wanted to breathe again and walk again and use my hands again, I was not to align my thoughts with fear or doubt or worst case scenarios. The spirits explained that I had to align my thoughts with the reality that I wanted and then speak that to reality and that reality only. Because whatever we say, we're giving God permission to make possible for us. Remember, God doesn't judge, God creates. God creates whatever it is we tell God to create through our words and our thoughts. If I had let my mind run wild with all the negative possibilities that could have played out in the hospital, I would have been giving God the impression that I was choosing those realities. If I had spoken about healing my body with doubt, or if I had prayed about my body from fear, then I would probably still be in a wheelchair today if I'd ever made it off life support at all. Most people pray incorrectly. They pray out of fear and they pray out of doubt, hoping to convince something punishing universal force to deem them worthy enough to grant them their wish. This is pointless. We must pray with the knowledge that whatever we're asking for already is, that it's already done, and that our prayer has already been answered. Notice how when I spoke to my lungs, when I spoke to my legs, I spoke about the healing that was already taking place. I wasn't hoping to be able to breathe, and I wasn't asking God to have mercy on me and pretty please allow me to breathe again someday in the future. I claimed that reality for myself right then and there. I wasn't asking, and I wasn't hoping, and I wasn't begging, and I definitely wasn't doubting. I was saying, this is how it is, and this is why I succeeded. But most people don't pray with that certainty or that conviction. Most people pray from insecurity. We can thank the darkness for that one. It's the darkness that got humans all mixed up about how to pray and trick them into filtering their desires through fear, because God operates from a pure field of love, which means that God doesn't get the messages that are being filtered through fear. All right, I'll stop there, but this is such a good book. I know that the word God can be kind of triggering, but uh, you can, you know, use whatever words you, you, you'd like. Okay, I am going to choose the next little book to read you from. All right, this excerpt is from Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which is totally a staple. And I bet a lot of you guys are familiar with this book already, but maybe this will be a little reminder for you of a section. And this section is surrounding self-confidence. Resolve to throw off the influences of any unfortunate environment and to build your own life to order. 
Taking an inventory of mental assets and liabilities, you will discover that your greatest weakness is a lack of self-confidence. This handicap can be surmounted and timidity translated to courage through the aid of the principal message of autosuggestion. The application of this principle may be made through a simple arrangement of positive thought impulses stated in writing, memorized, and repeated until they become a part of the working equipment of the subconscious faculty of your mind. Here's the self-confidence formula that he suggests. Number one, I know that I have the ability to achieve the object of my definite purpose in life. Therefore, I demand of myself persistent, continuous action toward its attainment, and I here and now promise to take such action. Number two, I realize the dominating thoughts of my mind will eventually reproduce themselves in outward physical action and gradually transform themselves into physical reality. Therefore, I will concentrate my thoughts for 30 minutes daily upon the task of thinking of the person I intend to become, thereby creating in my mind a clear mental picture of that person. Number three, I know through the principle of auto-suggestion that any desire I persistently hold in my mind will eventually seek expression through some practical means of attaining the object. Therefore, I will devote 10 minutes daily to demanding of myself the development of self-confidence. Number four, I have clearly written down a description of my definite chief aim in life. I will never stop trying until I have developed sufficient self-confidence for its attainment. Number five, I fully realize that no wealth or position can long endure unless built upon trust, truth, and justice. Therefore, I will engage in no transaction that does not benefit all whom it affects. I will succeed by attracting to myself the forces I wish to use in the cooperation of other people. I will induce others to serve me because of my willingness to serve others. I will eliminate hatred, envy, jealousy, selfishness, and cynicism by developing love for all humanity because I know that a negative attitude toward others can never bring me success. I will cause others to believe in me because I will believe in them and in myself. I will sign my name to this formula, commit it to memory, and repeat it aloud once a day with full faith that it will gradually influence my thoughts and actions so that I will become a self-reliant and successful person. Underpinning this formula is the law of nature that no one has yet been able to explain. It's baffled the scientists of all ages. Psychologists have named this law autosuggestion and let it go with that. The name by which one calls this law is of little importance. The important fact about it is that it works for the glory and success of humankind if it's used constructively. If it's used destructively, on the other hand, it will destroy just as readily. In this statement may be found a significant truth. Those who go down in defeat and end their lives in poverty, misery, and distress do so because of negative application of the principle of autosuggestion. This cause may be found in the fact that all impulses of thought have a tendency to clothe themselves in their physical equivalent. I'll read that line one more time. The cause may be found in the fact that all impulses of thought have a tendency to clothe themselves in their physical equivalent. Okay, I have one more little story for you guys. This one's a little different, it's cute. It's like a fable or fairy tale. It is from a book called Magical Tales from Many Lands by Jane Ray, and it's Arabic. It's an Arabic story. It's called The Lemon Princess. Once in those faraway times when toads had wings and camels could fly, a king and queen had an only son called Prince Omar. The day came when they decided he must do what every other prince does. He must find a beautiful girl and marry her. 
So Prince Omar looked for a beautiful wife, but, and it was a big but, he could not find a girl who was beautiful enough. One day an old woman came to him. My lord prince, she said, let me tell you about a princess, an exceedingly beautiful princess, whose face has not yet been touched by the sun. She's the one you seek. She is your fate. And how can I find this beautiful princess, he asked. You must ride eastward for three days and three nights, said the old woman. Then you will come to a garden surrounded by roses with a lemon tree in it that bears only three ripe lemons. Pick the lemons, but be very careful not to cut them open until you come to a place with plenty of water. The next morning, Prince Omar mounted his horse and set off. He rode eastward for three days and three nights until he came to a garden with a hedge of roses growing around it. He opened the gate and walked in, and it was not long before he found the lemon tree with its three ripe lemons. So the prince picked them and rode back the way he had come. Now he'd not gone far before he began to wonder what was inside those lemons. He chose one, took a knife, and cut it open. Then there rose up from the lemon an exceedingly beautiful girl. Water, she called out, please give me water. But there was no water anywhere around. The next moment the girl simply faded away and was gone. Prince Omar was sad, but the thing was done and there was no going back, so he continued on his way. It was not long, however, before he began to wonder about the other lemons and whether there were girls inside them also. So he chose another one and cut it open with his knife. And there rose up from that lemon a girl who was even more beautiful than the first, and she too called out, Water! Please give me water! But again, there was no water around anywhere, and this girl also faded away and was gone. I see now that I must take great care of my third lemon, said the prince, and with that he went on his way. After a while he came to a river, and remembering the old woman's advice, he took the third lemon and cut it open. And there rose up a girl who was even more beautiful than the other two who had come before. Her eyes were as gentle as the moon, her skin as pale as ivory, her long black hair was soft as silk. She too called out, water, please give me water. Well, Prince Omar was so anxious not to lose this beautiful girl that he took hold of her and dropped her in the river, just like that. She drank the clear, fresh water until she was satisfied, and then she climbed out, naked though she was. The prince took off his cloak and wrapped it around her. My beautiful lemon princess, he said, you and you alone shall be my bride, but before I take you to the palace, I must go and bring you fine clothes to wear and a horse to ride. Then I shall hide in this tall poplar tree until you return, said the lemon princess, and with that she called out, bend down, tall tree, bend down. Immediately the tree bent down. The lemon princess seated herself on the topmost branch where the tree stood tall again. Then the prince rode off. Time came and went, and the lemon princess sat high in the tree and waited. Before too long, a servant girl, an ugly girl with mean eyes, tangled hair, rough skin, and cracked lips, came to fill a water jar at the river. As she bent down, she saw the face of the beautiful lemon princess reflected in the clear water. There, see how beautiful I am, the servant girl cried. I always knew I was far too beautiful to be a servant. Then she heard someone laugh, and a voice called out, Look up, not down. The servant girl looked up, and there she saw the lemon princess sitting at the very top of the poplar tree. She said, What are you doing in that tall tree? The lemon princess answered, I'm waiting for my bridegroom, the royal prince, to return with fine clothes for me to wear and a fine horse for me to ride. Then the servant girl thought some wicked, evil thoughts. Oh, lady, lovely lady, she said, let me come up and talk to you and help pass the weary hours while you wait. Now the lemon princess had grown a bit lonely, so she said, bend down, tall tree, bend down. The tree bent down and the servant girl was soon among the topmost branches. Oh, lady, lovely lady, said the servant girl, who are you with your magic powers? Are you human or are you hoary? 
The Lemon Princess answered, I am a Huri, and now I have chosen to enter the world of humans to become the Lemon Princess. The servant girl said, Oh, lady, lovely lady, let me comb your long black hair. And she began to comb the Lemon Princess's hair. And as she did, she found a hairpin stuck deep in the princess's shiny locks. Oh, lovely lady, what is this? she asked. It's my talisman, said the Lemon Princess. Don't touch it. Talisman. Don't touch it, she said. Immediately, the servant girl pulled out the hairpin, and whirr, the lemon princess changed into a white dove, which flew away in a flutter of wings. The servant girl took off her own clothes and threw them into the river below, where they floated away. Then she wrapped the prince's cloak around her and waited. Now, when Prince Omar returned and saw the ugly servant girl on the poplar tree, he was amazed. What happened? he cried. You've changed. Your skin is creased and rough. It was the sun, my lord, she said. The scorching sun burned it. But your lips, your lips were soft like flowers. What about them? It was the wind, my lord, she said, the hot, dry, cracked wind. But your eyes, they were so large and gentle. It was the tears, my lord, she said, the tears I wept when I thought you'd never return. That's made them red and swollen. But your hair was soft as silk. It was the black crow, my lord, she said. The crow tried to build a nest in my hair and tangled it and made it rough. Oh, my God. Then the ugly servant girl climbed down from the tree. Time is a great healer, my lord. Shall I soon be as I was I shall soon be as I was before, she assured him. Prince Omar believed her, so he gave her beautiful clothes to wear, baggy trousers blue as the summer sky, a white blouse embroidered with pearls, a jacket of gold thread, gold slippers, a gold headdress, and gold bracelets. And together they rode off to the palace. Well, when the prince took the servant girl to the king and queen, they saw how ugly she was. This is your chosen bride? Surely not, was what they said. I have given her my word, the prince replied, and in 40 days our marriage will be celebrated. Now there was a garden around the king's palace, and before long a white dove began coming every morning to sit upon a sandalwood tree and sing. Every day Prince Omar came and stood beneath the tree and listened, and every day he said, How sad is the song that that white dove sings. As soon as the servant girl noticed this, she went to the gardener. The prince commands that you catch the white dove that sings the sad song in the sandalwood tree. She said, you're to kill it and bury it deep in the ground. The gardener did as he was told. He killed the bird and buried it. But the next day, at the very place where the dove was buried, there stood a great cypress tree, and the wind came and sighed in its branches. When the prince saw the tree, he was astonished. What wonder is this, he said, a giant cypress where no tree stood before. When he heard the wind sighing, he said, How sad is the sound of the wind in its branches. When the servant girl observed this, she went again to the gardener. The prince commands you to cut down the cypress tree and make from it a wooden cradle for the sun I shall have. Take any wood that remains and burn it. The gardener did as he was told. He cut down the tree and the carpenters cut the wood into planks and made a cradle. Then the gardener gathered all the bits of wood that remained and built a fire. He was just going to throw the last small branch into the flames when the prince's old nurse came by and asked the gardener for some firewood. He gave her the small branch from the cypress tree. The old nurse took the branch, put it down besides the fireplace, and then went off to the market. But the moment she shut the door, the branch shivered and trembled all over, and it changed into a girl. She was an exceedingly beautiful girl, the lemon princess herself. Straight away, the princess set to work. She swept the floor, she washed the dishes, she peeled vegetables and prepared a meal. Then she hid behind a door. When the old nurse returned home, she was very surprised. Who has done all this, she said, a human or a spirit? The lemon princess came out from her hiding place and said, I cleaned for you and I cooked for you, and now please will you do something for me? 
Go to Prince Omar and tell him that there lives in your house a girl who can make fine carpets, and he'll give you your silk threads, and she will make him the finest carpet he's ever seen. So the old nurse went and spoke to the prince, and he ordered that she, had been, she should be given silk threads and anything else that was needed. The lemon princess took needle and thread and set to work. Time came and time went. At last the day arrived when Prince Omar was to marry the wicked servant girl. She had not changed and she was ugly as ever. But the prince said to himself, I have given my word and so I must marry her. Truly she must be the lemon princess. Who else could she possibly be? But early in the morning of the wedding day, the old nurse took the beautiful finished carpet and went to the prince and said, My lord prince, here's a wedding gift. Prince Omar unrolled the carpet and he looked and looked again. The princess has woven a picture of a garden surrounded by roses. In the center of the garden was a figure of the lemon princess herself. Who made this carpet? The prince quickly asked. A girl who lives with me, answered the nurse. Bring her to me at once, commanded the prince. So the lemon princess came to the palace and the moment Prince Omar saw her, he knew her. Truly, he said, you alone are my beautiful lemon princess, my fate, the one who must be my bride. But tell me, where have you been? What happened to you these long and weary days? Then the lemon princess told Prince Omar about the wicked servant girl and her evil deeds. The prince was angry and sent the guards to find the servant girl, but as soon as she heard that she'd been discovered, she ran off, and she kept running, at least until she crossed into the next kingdom. Some say she's running still. Then at last there was a wedding, and Prince Omar married the beautiful lemon princess. The celebrations lasted for seven days and seven nights, and there was feasting, dancing, and great merriment for all. The end. Okay, guys. <laughs> I hope that was cute and fun. I loved, you know, having stories read to me as a kid, and there's something so calming and so peaceful about it. So I will talk to you next Wednesday, I guess. We have an awesome guest coming on, so stay tuned. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your evening, and love ya. Talk to you soon. <laughs>